Welcome to the Board of Education, where troublemakers and system breakers gather to discuss how they are dismantling inequity in public education. Calling our meeting to order is Chairman of the Board, Jonathan Santos Silva. All right, you heard him. I'm Jonathan Santos Silva. This is Doc Miller, and we together are the Board of Ed. What's going on, Doc? Hello, hello, hello. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm doing good, man. I. I just think that uh, things are ticking around. The fall. Fall is here. Yeah, my uh, Vachara got her first pumpkin spice, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like once you do that, it's over. It's kind of like, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, we've gone too far with pumpkin. So listen, <laughs> there, there are a few things in my, in my heart that are sacred, but bacon is one of them. And I saw pumpkin spice bacon, and I thought I was going to lash out irrationally. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, good. It's a good thing this is a, uh, an audio podcast. My face. I don't know what my face was doing, but because I love bacon, love. and I find certain pumpkin spice uh, flavored treats to be delicious, and I'm like, because mm, I know like people have done chocolate. I know that you know they try to put bacon into sweet things. That I don't know if that's a little step too far for me. Yeah, I, I think it went. I, like, I I wasn't even willing to try it. Right, like I'm an open minded guy, but don't mess with my bacon, man. That's Come the thing. On. That's the fear. It's like, you know, bacon, you know, at the risk of sounding sacrilegious, feels like a gift from the Lord. And I know that that sounds really crazy with the whole like Old Testament. It's like, no, uh, yeah. but I don't know, man. It's I, so will go, <laughs> I will go so far as to say, and this, this might actually get some, some hate online. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm entering into controversial territory knowingly. There is no such thing as turkey bacon. Like, show me on a turkey where the bacon comes from, <laughs> right? You can call them, you know, smoked turkey breakfast strips, but it ain't bacon. That is wishful thinking True at that. best. True. And at worst, it's just a damn lie. Like, you just lie yeah. to yourself. Don't do that. You know, I, I'm, I, I'll go with you there because I've had, um, you know, like uh, vegetarian and vegan uh, uh, substitutes for other food products uh-huh. and you're like okay this is close to the original you can't do bacon you really can't fake bacon there's no fake no. in bacon no no fake in bacon man, no <laughs> bacon, man. uh and, and speaking of bacon we're gonna bring it home today mm-hmm. um with this episode um uh, but before we get into that just a reminder uh if if you want to talk about anything education or bacon, uh, visit us on our social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter. We are at the underscore board of ed. That is T-H-E underscore B-O-R-E-D-O-F-E-D. Uh, we're also on Facebook, the board of ed. And of course you can um, check out any of our old episodes or learn more about our board members like Malika, who we're getting ready to introduce at theboardofed.com. That's the B-O-R-E-D of ed.com. Tell us, yeah. Jonathan, about Malika. So Malika is, Malika Ali is the director of pedagogy at the Highlander Institute, which is uh, a nonprofit organization, educational consulting organization based out of Rhode Island, which has done, uh, they've done some really tremendous work across Rhode Island, Massachusetts, you know, really the Northeast as like maybe like the hub but um, they've done some cool projects all over the country with uh, personalized learning, blended learning, you know, helping teachers um, make learning more student centric, you know, in a number of ways. It's not all about technology, <clears throat> excuse me. And so Malika's specific role, she's done a really great job of like bringing in um, culturally responsive teaching and methodologies. So that, again, we're not just saying, you know what, just put the kids on a computer and they'll get a great education, right? It's like, how do we ensure that even as we're like leveraging the power of technology, you know, uh, to, you know, get data right on time or to assess, you know, throughout class, how are we making sure that who the child is and all of the dimensions of his or her identity are reflected in the materials we select and the type of tasks we create and the ways we engage them, right? You know, and so uh, she's... uh, really, really smart um, and, and very dedicated to the community. And I just felt like, you know, we're going to talk about uh, how COVID is impacting education. Who better to talk to than someone who spends so much of her time dedicated to supporting the educators, you know, the frontline teachers, 
So she, yeah. I, I just think she's, you know, folks are going to be real excited to hear her. I think I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, a, a great deal because I think this is going to be really practical for, for our teachers who are listening um, because of, of how well thought out Malika is. And, and in an attempt to um, model what we've learned this season, I think the very best first question that we can ask her to understand how she's experiencing um, the, the, the past several months is how has COVID-19 impacted your community? I've lived in Rhode Island now for uh, going on, I guess, 16, 17 years. Um, and most of that time uh, I've been in Providence and uh, my first role in education in Rhode Island, actually just in education was in South Providence. So, uh, and then I taught in Central Falls. So I, I, for me, like Rhode Island has become home and in particular um, South Providence where I've done like the majority of my work and, um, and Central Falls. So kind of the urban core in Rhode Island, I consider, uh, I consider home. Um, and I mean, it's affected us in uh, some pretty profound ways. And I um, am most connected to the stories of the students, of teachers that I coach in my work. Um, and so, you know, in my own family, I, you know, everyone, we're, I feel blessed that uh, we're, you know, for the most part, healthy and, um, you know, have what we need. And so when I work with teachers on thinking about um, their move to like distance learning, and I hear the stories of the students who don't have Wi-Fi or whose family members are essential workers and don't have daycare. And so they have to take their, you know, elementary aged kids to work with them and put them at risk, you know, that's what I think of when I think of the impact on my community. And we know now that 45% of um, the cases, uh, positive cases, are um, people identify as Latinx. And so there's a disproportionate uh, percentage of Black and Latinx folks who are positive and who are dying here in Rhode Island. And that's my community, like as a black woman and somebody who's, um, you know, deeply connected to, uh, you know, culture and tradition. Um, I like feel, you know, like we have, like we have to, we have to be talking about that as a Rhode Island community and then like explicitly planning for what it's going to mean to, um, make sure that that's not the case. And so whether that's in the healthcare, um, you know, space and or the education space where I'm situated, it's really thinking about the gaps, the, the inequities that exist, because like you said, they've always been there, but we're seeing it magnified in a way that you just can't turn away. So if there's one gift, and I use the term loosely, but if there's one gift that the coronavirus and the pandemic have given us, it is that magnifier. Wouldn't you say it's like before this, I mean, and, and, and let's be honest, the folks who don't want to talk about equity, who don't want to talk about race, the people, the people who always go, well, I don't care if you're black, brown, blue, or green. You know, they know the blue or green people, but they always want to, that, that's like, I don't know, that, that is asinine comment is the, the proof that yeah. they're so open-minded. The folks who don't want to have this conversation um, are, are not going to have it. But for those who may be in the middle, and maybe just have lived a life and not been exposed to ra racism mm -hmm. personally um, or, or classism personally, haven't really seen how the isms and the yep. systematic nature of them have impacted. I feel like that is the quote unquote gift of the coronavirus. It has brought so much to light. It yeah. is harder for folks to say, I, I don't see it. Now it's like, wow. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think you're absolutely right there, Jonathan. And I think there are a lot of well-intended folks who are now aware of things that that because of their positionality both in in culture and in power and in race they they w were never really forced to look at right mm -hmm. and so what what has become sort of the telltale sign is we, we have folks who go i i didn't realize that how to like i'm i'm now in a learning space and then you have folks who are going I'm, I'm going to be willfully 
ignorant. I, 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 I see it because you can't not, you mm-hmm. can't not see it. Right. But I'm going to now go in to go, well, but, but, you know, bootstraps and all that, you know, like if you, if you're not, if you're not willing to see it when it's laid bare as COVID-19 has done, um, then, then there, there is a fundamental um, disconnect mm, between your lived experience and the lived experience of people who don't necessarily look like you, who weren't born into the same class as you, and who don't have the same uh, access to opportunity and privilege that you have access to. You know, what, what's, power, what's interesting about it is some of the, you know, many of the same people who want to deny the reality of oppression or of uh, systemic uh, racism and how it impacts you know, healthcare, education, employment, et cetera. They're the same ones who um, <clears throat> want to downplay the impact of this pandemic, this mm-hmm. virus, and are like dogging out teachers and educators because they're not back to school fast enough or they're not all 100% in person and blah, 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 and how it's really disrupted my life. I can't get my nails done. You know, yeah. and, they, and, they, and they are pulling out every negative aspect in every single way that this negatively impacts them. It's like the worst. And so what I love about what Malika goes into next is that her work has brought her into contact with the best. She has yes. seen some of the coolest things, you know, the opportunities that teachers have taken to like um, take advantage of this new environment that we're in and make the deeper, stronger connections with the kids who have traditionally been left behind. Let's, let's take a listen. So I, I think of the stories of, um, of some of the kids that I've, you know, been blessed to get to know through their teachers this year. Um, and so the, there's, um, there's a teacher that I, I coach uh, who's a fifth grade teacher in Providence, in South Providence. Um, and, you know, he has, um, he's worked really hard to try to support his students through um, this moment. And in particular, students who, um, whose families are have challenges around access and so you know i'll tell you the story of one kid um there's a kid uh jaden who you know didn't have his family did not have access to internet um and you know he would try to use the hotspot on the phone and that was not always working and sometimes would go you know to um his aunt's house and try to use the wi-fi there and was really trying to like make it work um and it was he was just really falling behind um and you know i keep talking to teachers about how like this should not be um like a the priority should not be around accountability and uh a measure of who has access right i think um Learning will always, spaces of learning, formal and informal, will always be um, precious, will always be important, will always be a way in which uh, those of us who have or are experiencing challenges can cope and can find um, like meaning and hope and like, uh, and can think about the future, can understand the the context in which we're operating, you know, learn more about the world um, and make commitments to making our own lives and our families' lives better. Um, but if if the focus is on accountability, then you lose sight of that. You lose you you lose that. And so this particular teacher, you know, this kid had uh, just a lot of challenges at home. Um, you know, was going to work with his dad um, and would come home and would miss the, the Zoom meetings. And so the teacher would create screencasts and, you know, he would try to get on the phone to watch the screencast to try to do the work. And eventually like the teacher ended up, you know, bringing um, like paperwork to his home and, or like physical work. And, and we designed some projects for the kid to do um, with his family. So he could still find opportunities to collaborate with, you know, in meaningful ways, like with his family and he had, personalized um, projects that were designed using like the things that the uh, interests and priorities of um, this kid, but also the resources that were available at home and that considered, you know, how do you open up this kid's mind and this kid's eyes, you know, towards like what 
could be, you know, what could, how to make things better and how to empower himself to really think about like uh, his own role in that. Because I think ultimately, and I did a lot of work around like culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogy. And there are two pieces of it. Like the, the, there's a piece on, um, you know, building students capacity to carry the cognitive load. Um, and there are prerequisite pieces around kind of the teacher's awareness, you know, particularly like social, sociocultural and sociopolitical awareness um, and, and community building, but ultimately it's towards like critical consciousness. So if this child can develop these thinking skills, right, and engage in critical reflection, as Ferry says, and that moves him to critical motivation, which then moves him to critical, ac critical action in which he feels compelled to and and does like act on what he believes to be the right thing to do like then we've succeeded in education um and so i'm sorry short about this kid um you know i i uh am so inspired by like how hard the teacher worked you know this was a kid who struggled with literacy and the teacher would um call him on the phone uh because they couldn't really do with the wi-fi challenges he so he'd call him on the phone and he knew and um a celebrity that this kid really liked. And so there, um, there's this app where celebrities read stories. And one of the kids' favorite celebrities was, you know, uh, um, reading stories on this app. And so that hooked him and, and got him in. And they would just read together at night every single day. And um, the teacher just really committed that time. And eventually the state really helped in getting um, like Wi-Fi and hotspots to families who really needed it. He, he as of the end of last week, got Wi-Fi. Um, and so hopefully, but, but the, the fact that like, given all those challenges around access, the teacher worked that hard to make sure that, you know, he stayed um, engaged, that he was um, working on meaningful tasks, that his, he was um, improving literacy, um, and that he was thinking critically, you know, thinking about the world, thinking about like the context in which like his challenges were happening um, and could like make some decisions on that and feel like empowered in the world, like has set him up so that now he is, he's hit the ground running. And when we go back to the brick and mortar school, like I feel really hopeful that this child will, um, one, know his teacher like absolutely cares about him. Um, but also even beyond this particular teacher, like knows that he has something special to offer the world through his learning. Yeah. Yeah. Right there, you know, Monique shares just a handful of really cool stories of what teachers are doing. And um, I mean, I think we all need to hear those things because we get too much of the flip side of the narrative, which is, you know, dogging out teachers for not wanting to do their job. And it's like, you know, it's hard work to teach on a good day when kids are not sick and people aren't dying. It's a whole nother thing when there's a pandemic, you know, and, and to that point, I, I, I want to keep the party going. You know, we used the back to better hashtag, you know, hashtag back to better a few weeks back, a few episodes back to talk about the ways that, you know, each of us are making the most of what's going on um, and what we want to see in school. And so if you have examples of things that teachers have done to help your child feel um, engaged or welcomed, whether they're in the full on um, virtual environment or you do the hybrid model, please um, use the hashtag back to better and, and hit us up on social media, share the stories. Um, and we'll, we'll be sure to share some of them here, you know, yeah. we'd love to keep that party going. And, and remember to tag us at the underscore board of ed, uh, on Twitter and Instagram or, uh, connect with us on Facebook, the board of ed, that's B O R E D. Um, yeah, I, I love Malika's take on this because I, there are a lot of people who are just talking about what's wrong. And she is very much in a world of here are the really great things that teachers are doing. And we don't hear people talking about that. There are more great things happening than there are bad things. And, you know, as, as someone who taught for well over a decade uh, and, and having have now being well into my forties, I don't want to talk about what part of a decade, uh, <laughs> but I know well over a decade of, of in-class instruction, man, you are a punching bag as a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And part of it is because people don't always understand what goes into it. I, I use the analogy like 
people say, you know, I, I've been to school, so I know what it is when it mm-hmm. means to be a teacher. Well, I've used a toilet, but I can't, I, I don't, I can't put one in myself. Like that takes a special set of skills right. that I just don't have. And I don't understand why people think just because I went to school, I know what it takes to be a teacher. Well, I would say virtually any adult in America has been in the hospital. And we don't say that same thing about, I've been in the hospital, so I'm going to do the brain surgery. I'll remove this tumor. Like no one says that. There's like another level of expertise that we project upon doctors and, and, and prestige and esteem. Same thing with, uh, you know, uh, lawyers or engineers, you know, I've been inside a building. I bet I could engineer one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one says that, right? But like all of your, a sudden. Your examples are much more elegant than my toilet <laughs> example. Let's be clear. No, but you know, same for a plumber, same for HVAC, right? Like these are yeah. specialty. I've been cooled by an air conditioner. I can fix the HVAC. No, you can't. No, you can't. Yeah. We respect the professionalism, the training, the dedication that all of these folks put, whether they've gone to medical school for, you know, 11 million years, or they did their HVAC internship, you know, and and have been uh, apprenticed. We respect that these professionals have put themselves in a position where they bring expertise and skill set, and we pay them accordingly. Only for a teacher do we go, like you said, oh, I've been to school. And so therefore, you know, and and it's, it's frustrating you know, and that's, and that's one of the reasons why I love Malika and the Highlander Institute, because as an organization, like they are big time champions and cheerleaders for teachers. They spend a lot of time supporting that work. Um, and, and, and whether it's, like we said before, the blended learning or more of the, like, the stuff that I really get into, the culturally responsive teaching, yeah. how do we bring kids' identity to the forefront and to the center? They are walking, especially Malika, side by side, parallel with the teachers. It's not like here's a, a thing, a document, read it. It's like, let's do this together. Let's plan this. And she's going to go into a little bit about how she does that and what that looks like. You know, I lean on the definition of Geneva Gay, who wrote the book, Culturally Responsive Teaching. Um, and she, she talks about how, um, you know, by using the cultural capital that kids have, you know, their cultural and linguistic um, forms of expression um, and practices, like using that to make their learning more effective um, uh, for them and more like relevant to them. Um, And then, you know, Django Paris and Samia Alam um, wrote a book called Culturally Sustaining Pedagogies, and they sort of pick up where she leaves off and uh, talk about the need to um, sustain these linguistic and cultural um, practices to really foster that in the classroom so that um, it is sustained and uh, that the purpose is for like social transformation. And so, we do a lot of work with thinking about, you know, supporting teachers to um, help kids uh, like carry the cognitive load so that their thinking skills can help them develop a sense of critical consciousness that allows them to um, improve their, their lives, their community lives and uh, improve society. Hmm. So it's not what I think, culture becomes, which is uh, something historic and, and static. And let's look back. Oh, but historically, your people did this. But it's really about cultivating the culture even moving forward as like a, a vehicle or a tool through which a, a student can attack learning in its many forms. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and doing it in a way um, where students are also critical. They're thinking about what what should be sustained, and and they're interrogating their own internalizations and uh, meaningfully like making decisions about you know what that will mean for them. So it is a living thing; it is like an evolving thing. And we create culture, and we sustain culture, and we evolve culture. And so to be an active participant in that, to be critical about that, to be like able to um, to uh, to have space in their learning to understand how the content that they're learning like fits into social contexts and fits into cultural contexts um, is is like ha- opens up kids' eyes in a way that um, you know trying to like teach them outside of that context um, can be really challenging. So pre COVID nineteen, 
I think there were folks who resisted culturally responsive teaching um, because it felt like an extra. Mm -hmm. It felt like something special that we were doing for certain students, you know, black and brown kids, Asian students, or whoever, you know, that population might be within your school context. And then now we have COVID-19 happening, right? The pandemic. And I, 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 I imagine folks might be even more resistant. Like we just need to do the core, right? We need to make kids, sure kids read and they can do math. Yeah, you know, he ain't got time for all this extra stuff. Why is that the wrong way of looking at this? Like, why or what? How can I look at culturally responsive teaching practices or culturally sustaining pedagogy as actually maybe the answer or an answer and approach to making learning better in the midst of all the craziness that's happening right now? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. Um, and I'm watching educators, uh, teachers, and administrators grapple with that because you're right. I, there were a lot of people who um, felt challenged by the idea that they had to now learn about and understand all of their students' cultures and uh, construct learning with that in mind. And so, I mean, I've had teachers say to me, um, do you mean to tell me if I have 27 kids in my classroom, I have to understand 27 cultures, like that is too much. Like I cannot do that. Like that is, so that in their minds, it is this unreasonable expectation to have to go and become an expert in every single culture. So this child is from this country originally, like this child identifies in this way, this child, and, and I have to learn all of that. And that's not my job. That's not what I signed up for. Nobody taught me that in school. And it's interesting to see the shifts in, um, thinking now. So there's a teacher that I work with um, who is uh, recognizing that, you know, you have to attend to students' uh, social emotional needs, particularly in this time in general, but um, it, it, it makes it that much more difficult to teach students, you know, the content that, you know, she has for them. Um, if the students are feeling um, frustrated, are feeling like a lot of different things, you know, in this moment. And because teachers are self, um, they're, they're thinking about, they're self-reflective about their own um, kind of emotional space, they're opening up that space for students a little bit more as well. Um, and there was a teacher who um, was, thinking about how to engage students in social emotional learning. And typically, you know, well, at least at the elementary level, they have that kind of boxed curricula. So it's like, here's an, an SEL curricula, like go teach your kids these things. And, and sometimes, you know, I think there's a, there is a place for that. And some of them can be, you know, it can be useful to learn it sort of explicitly, but it's so important to learn it in a way that's like integrated with their real experiences and with content and with their like unit design. And so um, this teacher was, um, she and I talked about uh, leaning on families funds of knowledge. And this is a core part of culturally responsive teaching. It's like recognizing that families have these deep and rich funds of knowledge from which we can draw to co-construct meaningful learning experiences know for and with students and um, so we designed a um, a project in which uh, like a mini unit in which students would actually interview their families about um, their resiliency strategies so um, you know I was, I was trying to share with her that our families um, and, and this is a school in in Providence families have um, histories of resilience. Our kids uh, have generations of uh, resiliency practices from which to draw that should be engaged in this moment. And so there's a lot that a boxed SEL curricula is not going to teach you. And so what, um, what we're doing is designing these uh, these, these interview opportunities. So the students, the final product is um, that students will interview a family member about how they cope with challenges. So their resiliency strategies, and then the student will write a reflection on um, what that means for them, what they hope to incorporate, what things they, you know, 
noticed about that, what they feel about that, um, how it impacts them, you know, what they plan to use moving forward. And it's an opportunity for the teacher to learn the resiliency strategies from the cultures of her students. And so it turns out that rather than being extra work and being more difficult, it actually makes her life easier because she's not doing this one size fits all like boxed SEL curricula that she doesn't necessarily believe in. She's learning that this child, um, you know, his family copes in this way, like this child, uh, her mother, you know, has these strategies. And so when she's talking to this child or when she's working with this child on, um, you know, moving through productive struggle and getting out of the learning pit, and this child needs to remember, needs to be reminded of the resiliency strategies in her own history. You know, she can lean on that because she's watched that interview. She knows what her family's uh, culture holds, and she can bring that into her learning in a way that actually feels meaningful for that child. So it's a small example of like what I'm what I'm seeing, but teachers I think are seeing that that it's not more work. It makes their lives easier. It makes their lives more. It, it's a more efficient you know process for them and it's more meaningful for the kids and it brings their families in as like uh genuine partners and equal partners in their kids learning i absolutely love and understand that frame about culturally responsive teaching you know our our profession has been we're always being given all of these new initiatives and these new things and and they they last for a minute and then they go away uh, you can track back decades to see what was the what was the hot topic, but those go away because they were add-ons to an already difficult role. Mm. Culturally responsive teaching, which which really isn't a thing, it's it's a, it's a mindset, it's a mind frame, it's an approach, is integrative, right? Right, and and it makes our our jobs. Um, so much better and more impactful as educators when we do it well. Mm -hmm. So it's not an add-on. It, it's actually the way it should be. It, it gets it gets kids deeply engaged in in learning, man, and it shows them that they are valued in the space of education, which for a lot of children, particularly children of color, um, children with learning disabilities. Um, children for whom English is not their native language. Um, there, there, there are just constant messages that you don't belong in the educational space. And cultural responsive teaching at its core says, no, you do belong here. And this is about you. Right. You know, I think I had, a, I, we had a conversation one time. Uh, we were talking about education equity here in South Dakota, talk, and we were talking to a, a lobbyist, getting advice about how we navigate the po political realm. And so he's asking us questions. And at one point he responds, well, I mean, I guess I just don't get this, you know, you know, what is, what is, you know, cause we were talking about indigenous uh, education, right? Um, which basically is, you know, thinking about culturally responsive teaching, but specifically through the lens of indigenous students and their experience, right? And he's like, well, I don't get it. You know, I didn't go to school and get white guy education. What's all this, right? And he's kind of like, you know, just like, I don't know, taken aback by the 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 the, the fact that we would even ask for something different. And and I and I stepped up as the ally or the complex because I'm the non-native person in the room, other than him. And it's like, well, when you when you go to school, when I go to when we, I usually say we, even though I'm not black, because in South Dakota, if you're not white or native then you're, you're fine. Right. It's like, they don't, they have too much. Uh, I, I hate to say it this way, but I feel like folks are too busy, not liking native people. They don't have, they don't have enough time to focus on me as a black man. So I get to show up kind of neutral. Right. And I say, well, when you and I go to school, the teachers look like us, the authors of the books look like us. Most of the characters come from places like ours. And so there is a subtle way in which who we are is affirmed and supported in school. I don't question whether or not we belong there. I said, culturally responsive teaching, indigenous education, we are not asking for something extra. We're asking for the same thing that white middle-income kids enjoy every day, a space that affirms who they are, that says they belong, and that they, um, they can be uh, uh, high-performing, high-achieving in an academic environment. Right? That's yeah. what we're asking for. I, I'm struck by, by that experience that you have because the phrase, I didn't get a white guy education, 
is gonna like that's gonna haunt me because yeah you did right like everybody does like let's be clear everybody does we don't label it that because the white experience in every aspect of our society is so commonplace Mm -hmm. that it's been replaced instead of calling it white we call it quote normal right it's public education yeah and so 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 if that if that's your mindset then you're you're missing how so intimately entwined the white experience is with how we teach everything from from history and english uh to even math and science right Mm. and so 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 i'm afraid the 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 gentleman with whom you were speaking is so entrenched in his own identity yeah um, and, and and preserving his, preserving the support superiority of whiteness. You know, he said it in a dismissive way because his follow-up comment was, you know, why do we have to do something different? My sister is a principal and she'd say if native kids would just come to school every day, they'd learn. Right. And so what he wanted to do was to preserve the idea that white people aren't doing better because we get white education. We're doing better because we work harder. Our kids are smarter, blah, 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 right? Like it's white, it's white supremacy, right? And it's, if only, you know, the other people would do what we do, they might enjoy this too. And so to our, our listeners who maybe have asked a similar question, but not from that space, like, well, what is culturally responsive teaching? Why do we have to do this? This feels extra. Be- and, 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 you know, and, and it's coming from more of like an, uh, an inquiry base, right? We, we want you to ask those questions, right? Because then- Doc, Malika, folks like that can help you understand. But it's that that dismissive mindset where I just I don't have I don't have a lot of patience for it. I really don't. I'm gonna borrow a phrase from a from a famous TikToker. because uh, <laughs> I'm so hip. Uh, <laughs> his, uh, he's at unconsciously uh, the L E E. He's a he's a um, a professor. Uh, I believe he teaches um, about racism and equity. He says you're lost in your sauce, right? Mm. Like, uh, and I, I do think that is the case where we, we be, because of, of how important identity is to how we experience the world, it is very easy to get lost in the sauce of your own identity and forget that other people don't experience the world the same way. And mm. so for that reason, I think it's important for us to ask Malika, what can teachers do to, to make especially as the time is right for us to make these shifts, what can teachers do to make more inclusive, culturally responsive classrooms for every child? Because it will benefit every single child. You know, we have to ask ourselves, what are we preparing students for? And if we can kind of construct or reconstruct our why in this moment, given uh, what's going on and given the, both the challenges, but also the opportunities, um, then that helps elucidate for us what the path will be. So um, as students figure out, or as teachers figure out kind of what is my what is my North Star and how am I engaging with families and students to think about that? You know, what am I actually preparing kids for? Um, and the kinds of answers that you get will be a lot deeper and a lot more profound than test scores, I believe, if we get to the core of it. Um, and so just pushing families or pushing, pushing like everyone who's involved, but, but particularly our teachers who are, um, doing so like working so hard and doing so much in this moment i'm constantly inspired by you know like the teachers that i'm working with who are like going way above and beyond and um are doing work that they have not been adequately uh equipped even to do and are still like pushing forward but really really kind of articulating our ee for each of us like what is our north star what are we preparing our students for and how in this moment do we get there you know, I, I imagine that there may be quite a few teachers listening who want to do more or want to operate differently. And maybe they're either, you know, totally like nervous and scared, like I don't want to get this wrong, or they are like 
feel overwhelmed by just like, I'm trying to catch, I'm, I'm just still trying to reach all my students. I still haven't found them all because I know in some places the, the access is still a critical issue. Um, what are some of the things your teachers are doing that maybe they were not doing before that they've been emboldened to do because the moment calls for it? So like even inspire teachers that it can be done, that, that you can, your peers are doing it, you can do it as well. Like we, we really believe that it's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, as uh, in the first week or so, first couple of weeks of uh, distance learning, um, we saw that a lot of teachers um, and administrators uh, at the school level and district level were trying to sort of double down on, you know, kids need to be in front of computers for six hours a day and we're just gonna, you know, business as usual, just at home. And we're uh, quickly getting frustrated. And in some cases it was sort of leading to um, just chaos and confusion. And so we wanted to put out some guidance around um, some key considerations for planning for distance learning. And so we actually developed a website around this and, and the way that we're, we're guiding um, educators is to think about four key considerations. So the first one, and it's sort of, we think about it um, as one is, is um, kind of leans on the one before. Oh, let me pause you for a second. Yeah. Just in case someone's listening and they wanna actually look at the visual, where, where can they find this, uh, the four considerations? They can go to highlanderinstitute.org. Um, Maybe it's like right there. Bam. It's like right yeah. up front. I know. Yeah. So yes, if you want to see what Malik is talking about, pause your, the podcast, go to highlanderinstitute.org, and then you should see an icon near the top of your screen. It should be brightly colored too, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. the four considerations for distance learning, but go ahead. So what's the first consideration? Um, so the first one is uh, thinking about, you know, how are you reaching out to you know, all of your families individually to understand their current conditions and needs. So this is really connecting with our families around self safety and well-being. Um, and, you know, then it's uh, thinking about kind of ongoing communication with families. So how are we communicating with them in, in ongoing ways that facilitate relationship building? Because we know that um, relational trust is the foundation for um, effective family school partnership, but also for just for, for students to be successful. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the consideration number three is like, how are we communicating with students um, in an ongoing way that, that facilitates relationship building. So building in those structures of support um, for kids um, and structures that can lead towards um, you know, kind of set the stage for meaningful learning tasks, which is the fourth consideration. So how are we thinking differently about the kinds of meaningful learning experiences um, that students can be engaged in in a distance learning format? And um, and so that's thinking about kind of the, the um, relevance, the engagement, um, how to make their thinking visible, um, how to uh, root their learning in the, you know, in social contexts that help them understand how it's connected to uh, real life. Um, and so, you know, we put out this guidance and, you know, in our coaching with teachers, we sort of had to like um, pull them back sometimes. So, you know, there are some teachers who, um, I remember the example of one uh, who's an elementary school teacher who immediately try to build five Google classrooms, one for each content area, and just like, just went head first to try to try to do this and, and with great intention, right? Um, again, like she was trying to do something that she was not prepared to do necessarily. Um, but with all of our teachers, we, we try to help them pause and come back to this question of, you know, what has been your engagement with families like? Um, and I have one teacher who I remember, because um, in, the, in the first couple of days of distance learning, teachers were absolutely amazed. The attendance was really, really, really high, even in um, classrooms and schools where uh, historically attendance had been really, really low, you know, because people, kids wanted a sense of community. They wanted to belong. Kids want to belong to uh, a beloved community. And so, you know, that's a component, a really important component of academic mindset is believing that you belong to an academic community. And kids wanted that, especially in this moment. And so they, they came. But then 
by the end of the week, like a lot of teachers were really frustrated because that's when the systems and structures that didn't, that weren't there or that weren't solid or the relationships that weren't solid, everything started to sort of falter. And so, you know, it was a matter of let's take a step back. Let's refocus on like we don't need to we don't need to move fast. Um, sometimes you, you got to go slow to go fast. So let's take a step back. Let's connect with families. Let's figure out where they're at. Let's what do they need? Um, and then let's, you know, build some structures around what we learned from them. So communication structures are really important and they should depend on what the families are telling you about what they need. And then we think about, okay, now let's help, uh, let's help our families build routines um, and structures with their students. So everybody's on the same page. Let's build these structures now around uh, what our students need based on that communication. And now we've set the stage for meaningful learning opportunities. And so there's a lot of, of prerequisite work that has to happen in order for learning to be like meaningful and effective for students. And in order to keep them engaged, because if we're going to be real, there isn't really a lot of accountability here, you know? What are we going to do? Suspend kids? Like they're, <laughs> we are relying on their engagement to, um, to make distance learning work. And so um, I, I think of a teacher who um, really took that to heart. You know, when we, I remember how frustrated he was at the end of the, the very first week. Um, and I just remember thinking, oh gosh, like I, you know, normally I'm in his classroom with him when I'm coaching him and um but I can't be in the trenches with him in this way in the same way um you know he's really caring a lot and so you know we talked about what it was going to take to to kind of reset and build these structures and I'm super impressed with and proud of kind of where where he's come and so I you know I think about just one structure of um so he, uh, he does these like daily SEL check-ins with students. Um, and then depending on where they're at, like he'll determine if he needs to follow up, you know, himself or with the family, with a social worker, with, you know, whomever else, um, depending on, cause that's just a sort of a quick, like, you know, scale of one to five, sort of where they're really at. And, and there's like a framing question um, and something to reflect on every single morning. It's a different, different framing question. Um, uh, social emotional learning. Yes, thank you, thank you. I'm just thinking of, in case we have some parents who are like, what the heck is SEL? You know? Yeah, every time I do that, yeah, definitely stop me. No, um, sure. and, uh, and so then it was thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we build social emotional learning into those learning experiences. So one example was the teacher um, who had the, the interview of the families, like that could be a good example of that. And then, you know, at the end of every week, the kids fill out these um, end of week reflection forms. And on, and this is on Friday, uh, Friday afternoons. Um, and what they do is they, they reflect on what worked for them, you know, what didn't work for them. So, so from their own perspective, like what did they do that they want to keep doing? Um, and why do they think they, uh, their reflections um, were positive or negative, however it is that they frame it. And then they, they give the teacher feedback, what instructional strategies worked, what tools um, that he used worked, what didn't work and why. Um, and so he's getting this constant feedback and then they reflect on their social emotional learning from the week. So there's an end of week sort of reflection. And then they, they think about where they were the whole how they assess themselves all week and then kind of reflect on that um and then what he does and this was a really powerful moment was really kind of coming back to because he was like okay I've, i i got the first that first consideration about i had reached every single family member i got every kid on you know google classroom i i've you know we've done we've got routines i've reached out to and connected families with the resources that they need but now i feel like i'm sending them all this information and you know it's, I don't really have a sense of, it doesn't feel like two-way communication. So we built in the structure where this teacher now, um, he has probably like uh, 25, 27 kids. Um, so he meets with uh, every family member every two weeks. So the kids, um, he, has to, he has to check in with two to three family members a day. And they go through this structure. They talk about, you know, here's uh, their attendance, here's their completion, here's their end of week reflection from the last two weeks. Um, and uh, now the, the teacher can ask, you know, what can I do to help you support your child at home? And what do you need me to do to help support your child better? So it becomes this sort of structure of ongoing communication. And that set him up to like push their learning so much better. And as he's thinking about designing and like sort of co-constructing learning experiences he's leaning on what he, he's learning from the family members about the kids as well 
So mm. potentially that could ultimately be kind of more student-led conferences virtually. I don't know, that feels ambitious right now, but um, yeah, it's really kind of thinking through the lens of these four considerations and building in structures that rely on like relational trust as the foundation that set you up to be able to co-construct meaningful learning opportunities with kids and families. What strikes me is that um, it sounds like in some cases, obviously I don't want to overgeneralize, but it seems like in some cases, teachers are finding that they are, ha they are building deeper relationships with students and families now that they can't be in the same space than they did in the first three sem uh, quarters, right? Like, and I think that's maybe one of the things that folks who are not in education, you know, parents or, or not a, don't, don't think about is like, when you're in a classroom with 30 kids, you may be in proximity, but you, very, you often have very little time for one-on-one, -on -one, like, or even uh, one on a small group of, like in terms of deep relational uh, activities, relationship building, SEL, social emotional learning check-ins. It's like, you're teaching everyone the content, you might be facilitated some group or independent practice. And then by the end, I mean, and I'm thinking from a high school example, and then you're kicking them off to the next class. If you're in elementary, it, you may have a little bit more flexibility, but still not a lot of time to just be one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, Malika, how are you? Oh, it seems like this is really tough. Let's take extra time. Well, yeah, you could do that. But then, you know, you're not doing what you are quote unquote supposed to be doing. And so like, it seems almost like it sucks that it took the pandemic to do it, but almost like the pandemic gifted us with a return to right prioritization, right? Like knowing your kids and building a real relationship and not just quizzing or surveying them, but actually having it be both in uh, two way and then building off of that to a family relation, that is the work. Like any meaningful progress and growth that's gonna happen is gonna come from that relationship of trust. Like I trust you as my teacher, or I, te I trust you as a ch the teacher of my, my child to take them where they need to go. So that's powerful, I love those examples. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that is the key takeaway. And, uh, and it's um, people, educators know this inherently to be true, but it, it really, really came to light for them in ways that solidified exactly that. I think that is the most important takeaway from, from all of this. Um, and uh, it really does um, for like it 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 uh forces us to really ask the question like what will the new normal look like if this is if families are more engaged now and communication is deeper um and uh trust is deeper and the learning partnership is more solid in this moment when we come back to brick and mortar you know, what are we going to do to maintain some of these, uh, the, the systems and structures that are working? Mm. Um, because one thing that, that, that uh, a lot of kids are recognizing is while there are some very real challenges around access and while, um, you know, this way of learning is, is challenging for a lot of kids and a lot of families, there are also a lot of kids for whom this is working better than the mm. traditional environment. And part of it, I think, is uh, due to exactly what you're talking about, deeper relationships with families. Um, and, you know, some of the challenges around classroom management that are true in, or that had been true, like sort of pre-COVID, uh, that in this moment, like, it, what matters the most is the work that kids are doing and how they're able to show their learning. You know, if there are kids who are hyper, who need to get up and move a lot, you know, they're not going to get in trouble for that, you know? Right, and, right. and there's a kid who I'm thinking of who has just, the teacher was expressing how proud she is of him and how she did not realize how um, uh, strong of a student he really is because he had always gotten in trouble for moving, for getting up. And this is, this is a child who needs to move. You know, I need to move. Yeah. Um, and really asking ourselves those questions of what are the things that need to continue to be true? What are the things we're learning um, that we need to um, bring back into the post-COVID, kind of back in the brick and mortar um, learning so that we don't go back to business as usual? Yeah. I think, I think if, there, if, if, 
there's one thing I would encourage teachers to do. It's like in, in cases like that, where you see a child who is thriving in this environment, don't take for granted that you know why. Ask the kid the question because like, like conduct the empathy interview to really understand what is it because I bet like now that she, that teacher knows that he's just a fidgeter and it's not like there's no um, maliciousness or, or anything behind the activity. She can probably brainstorm two or three different things she can do when that child returns to school that will help him continue to be successful. Right. So, but just asking, making sure like, Hey, I've noticed X, Y, and Z what's going on. Right. Cause the, I think another thing is like the behavior part is one thing. Like I can just get up and wiggle right now if I want, cause we're on going to be, this is audio, right? And no one sees me. Um, but I also wonder like, because for a lot of our kids, their families are home too. Whether it's because they didn't have that amount of time with their families or just like having an adult to touch and check in on them in ways that we just talked about. It's hard for teachers to do when you have 30 kids in front of you. Mm-hmm. Like, that stuff is making miracles happen. And so like, I really encourage, like ask the question, what is it making it, what's helping you succeed? so that I can try to figure out how I can implement that in my classroom. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And there's a really great structure for that, Um, you know, pulling on Chris Emden's work um, around like cogenerative dialogues. And we have some teachers who are starting to implement cogenerative dialogues with their students to get feedback on uh, an ongoing basis. Um, And for those of you who don't know um, what these are, Put very simply, I mean, you you can take just, you know, four students at at a time and it's like a focus group, but you rotate uh, students and you're engaging with dialogue. You're asking them to give you feedback on your learning. And you're also, you know, really talking through not just instructional strategies, but you can um, design learning experiences that uh, that work for your specific students, but also you're unpacking some of those nuanced things. Like, you know, what exactly is working for you? Why is this working for you? Like, how are you experiencing this, this learning, you know, um, uh, experience? Like, and asking those questions and asking them often and getting that picture of how, you know, all of your kids are, are, um, experiencing this learning and why they think that um, it's yielding the results that it's yielding for them is such a key learning for teachers. And so, you know, it's, it can feel like um, an, another thing to do, like an ad, but it's the, the um, return on investment is pretty enormous because you, you, you get it in deep engagement and kids when they feel like they are part of co-constructing learning experiences and their needs are being met and they know that you know they are responsible just think of it for a second right like it don't and don't think about what the kid looks like what language a kid speaks you know anything doesn't that just sound like the environment you want for your own students, right? Whether they are your biological children, they're your nieces and nephews or kids you care about, right? This idea- Stop, stop there. Isn't that what you want for you, right? Right. Isn't that what, isn't that what you want from, from, from your work environment is to feel like you have some autonomy and space mm-hmm. to, to, to be heard and contribute to your own experience, right? Like take it out of education altogether. Right, no, true that, true that. It's like, it's so very human, you know, it's like, and this is the part I think of the culturally responsive teaching that if, 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 there's, if, if you don't walk away with specific strategies yet, I'm cool, cool. this was a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. But you've got to walk away with this idea that this is not just, you know, I'm going to show up and, and, and have kente cloth on or I'm going to put like some decorations up because it's not just about like, does the environment feel good? When she talked about co-constructing the learning environment, that is a level of rigor, right? So yeah. Just for fun to make everyone feel good, it's because we know we understand that in so doing, we are allowing students to show up fully and to and put all their brain power into whatever it is that you've put before them. You know, um, Malika shares a ton of resources here, and and, and to your point, like there, there is a way to do culturally responsive teaching in a way that's actually harmful um, if, if we don't get our head around it well. And, and I want to be very clear, cultural responsive teaching is, is, is formative and positive and impactful for every child. 
whether they are a, a, a black child, a, a Latinx child, or a white child, or an indigenous child, right? Like, it, these are great teaching strategies. But if we go into it, and, and this is the, the um, sort of counterexample that, that resonates with me, like, if you think that taking a, you know, John has five apples math problem, and you change it to Juan has five tacos, that's not cultural responsive teaching. That's just racist, right? Like, like, <laughs> and you're like, oh, but I was trying to make, no, that's like, we're, we're dealing with surface culture. This is about engaging kids more deeply. And so I, I want to call out, uh, because just I know- to be clear, you know, just in case someone wonders, yeah. if there's a problem that says Juan, you know, Juan has tacos, it's not that Juan connected to tacos is somehow racist. It's the idea that you have boiled his culture down. Yes. Thank to, you. To what Doc was saying, the service level. Like all you can think of to make this connection is Juan and tacos. That is racist because you have just distilled all of Latin American culture into one common name and one food that has really kind of been stereotyped, right? So that's that's the issue. Yeah. And it gives us a sense that we've arrived, right? right. Like it, it, the work here is done. Right. Um, so, so Malika mentions two texts that I want to make sure uh, everybody caught the, caught the title of that I, I think are incredible resources. Uh, before I share those texts, I also want to be very clear that, that there are a lot of teaching texts out there that are like strategy or technique based, right? You get teach like a champion and th those are like discrete skills. Cultural responsive teaching is a different approach. It requires some self-work first for you to understand your own identity, your own biases. And then once you get that mindset, that's when the work begins. It's, it's not turnkey, easy peasy, like, but once you've done the work, the impact is immeasurable. Uh, so so um, she mentioned um, the seminal text, Cultural Responsive Teaching by Geneva Gay. Um, it is, it's incredible. It's an incredible text and really is foundational. Uh, Another text that sort of walks in that same, you know, takes the next step is Cultural Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. Um, she really goes into like the brain science behind it and, and does give us a lot of practical approaches uh, to culturally responsive teaching. It's a phenomenal text. Um, and then she mentioned Christopher Emden, uh, his text, uh, probably the most impactful text, one of the most impactful texts I've ever read as an educator is for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too. Um, and it's about uh, reality pedagogy in urban education. All of those texts are, are phenomenal resources for teachers of, of, of all um, stripes whether you teach in urban education, whether you teach um, uh, with indigenous populations or whomever, the, there are some really great foundational transformative educational concepts here that will positively impact your kids' experience in school. Mm, yeah, those are some good ones. I, I would do the throw in there. If you can see, uh, I haven't seen Chris Emden live, but I've seen video. He's very dynamic. So I would definitely take advantage of that if he was ever in my area. I mean, I, I don't know he's coming to South Dakota anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, Zaretta Hammond. We don't get any, uh, this is not an ad, you know, we're not getting paid for this, but we've been in training with her. Oh, yeah. Back in our, my TNTP time, you know, under the fellowship. Phenomenal. She's I mean, so good. And what I loved about what she did is it's not like you bought the book, come into the training, and I'm going to talk about the book. She takes you to the next level. Yeah. And she pushes and challenges you. So, I mean, look, while we're, while we're talking about these awesome books, let's also talk about supporting one, you know, folk, African-American, Latinx, people of color who know their academic game, right? Like, I feel like this is just me. I'm going to go on a little quick tangent. Uh, I spent some time in, um, in the No Excuses Charter realm. Um, and I'm, this is not, I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush, but it felt like a lot of times, um, the space for leadership for educators of color. You know, you come out of the classroom, uh -huh. you become dean of culture, dean of discipline, and um, downplaying the academic excellence and the hardcore skill that educators of color can bring to that side of the house as well. And so just shouting out, Chris, Dr. Emden, you know, uh, Zaretta Hammond, Malika, you know, folks like that who are doing this work and who look like your students. So just if you're doubting, the ability of your students to excel, 
you don't have to look much further than the folks we're just talking to all this season. You know, amazing educators, amazing, amazing leaders um, who know their game. And, and just a reminder, the Highlander Institute's website, which she did mention in our conversation, is highlanderinstitute.org. Um, make sure you check that out because there are, again, practical resources. That's what's jazzed me up about this episode is there's so much practicality in what Malika shared. So um, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. You can check out uh, past episodes at theboardofed.com. That's the B-O-R-E-D of ed.com. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, please tag us on Facebook, the Board of Ed, or at Insta or on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore B O R E D of Ed, uh, and let us know those really great success stories, like like Malika shared, where you are taking it hashtag back to better. Jonathan, send us off into the sunset. You know, man, all I gotta say is, you know, it felt like for a second teachers were having their moment in the sun. And folks were throwing um, flowers and bouquets your way. Teachers of the year. We talked about this in a prior episode. It was a great moment, right? After, after like months and months and years and years of teachers fighting for, for fair pay, it just felt like, wow, we had turned the corner. And boy, was I wrong. You know, folks want to throw shade on a teacher again um, in the midst of this pandemic, like y'all work ain't hard enough. And so I just want you to know that if no one else says today, Doc and I, the Board of Ed, we love teachers. We appreciate teachers, especially those of y'all that are really digging in and are making ad adaptations and adjustments to your, your, your repertoire so you can meet kids where they are at, right? The kids who don't have regular access to internet or their internet ain't that great, that are doing their, your work off a phone, you know, all of y'all that are doing the work to figure it out, to make connections with those kids and their families so that they don't get left behind, we appreciate you. And so, and for all the rest of you, right? Our critical work this week is to show love to the teacher. Show love to a teacher. Send, send your kid's teacher a text, a message, an email, something. Just Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith, we appreciate you. We love you. We have all the things that you're doing for our kids. And if there's anything we can help you with, let us know what that is, right? Let's do that. The Board of Ed this week, Back to Better, is, is showing a greater and deeper appreciation for those that are on the front lines doing this most essential work. Um, I appreciate you. Like I say, we appreciate you. And we wouldn't be doing this without y'all. You're the core of our, our, our audience. You're the original board member. So thank y'all for listening this week. We'll see you next time. Stay bored. Yeah. Yeah.